You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to Inside North Central Massachusetts, the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Travis Condon, the Chamber's Public Affairs Manager. We're happy to be joined today by Congressman for the 2nd Massachusetts Congressional District, Jim McGovern, and 3rd District Congresswoman Lori Trahan. Congressman McGovern, Congresswoman Trahan, thank you both for taking the time to join us. Happy to be with you. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thanks. Let's start off talking about the pandemic. Uh, The unfortunate reality is that we are not out of this yet. How concerned are each of you about the emergence of the Delta variant and these rising cases that we're now seeing across the nation? Well, uh, let me begin by saying, uh, you know, I am concerned. Uh, I am concerned that so many people still uh, have refused to get vaccinated. Um, Vaccinations save lives. And there are people uh, who are spreading misinformation, including some of our colleagues here in Congress, I think it's disgraceful. Uh, I'm, I'm being told by doctors that uh, the number of people showing up uh, with the virus um, who have not been vaccinated, uh, showing up in hospital emergency rooms is growing. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post today about a, a woman uh, who uh, didn't get vaccinated, who, ha- who got the virus and was asking for the vaccination, but the doctor said it was too late. So, uh, look, this is about saving lives and um, not only of your, you saving your own life, but saving and protecting the, the, the lives of the people around you. So please get vaccinated. Yes, I mean, I, not much to add uh, to uh, Chairman McGovern's comments. I will say the American Rescue Plan was key to getting shots in arms, uh, mm-hmm. among other things, right? Money into pockets, uh, relief to small businesses. And all of that enabled uh, the end of the state of emergency here in Massachusetts. I mean, the Commonwealth has vastly outperformed other states in vaccinations. Um, but look, I've got two little girls. They're 7 Eleven. They can't get vaccinated yet. And so when you hear CDC Director Walensky dub this as a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it just causes us as, you know, elected officials, as folks in our community to double down and, uh, talk to people about getting that vaccination, uh, and making sure that they know that this is the key for us ending the pandemic. Um, once and for all. We know that this vaccine is safe. We know it's effective and we know that it's saving lives, but we need to get everyone, as many people as we can, vaccinated. Now, if cases do continue to rise, do you see yourselves ending up in a similar situation to what we had in 2020, or do you believe that the administration would take different steps continuing with the American Rescue Plan? Well, things are different, right? We have a vaccine. We have a vaccine. Um, and so um, the people who are vaccinated are more protected, obviously. Uh, but, um, you know, there may have to be some additional steps taken, uh, and, um, and individual communities will take steps on their own and businesses and colleges and universities are going to take steps on their own. I mean, some are requiring that people need to be vaccinated before they show up to school. Um, some are, some are requiring that people still wear masks. I mean, we, we serve in Congress with some colleagues who refuse to get vaccinated. And, um, so, you know, I mean, and there are some, gatherings that I go to that I put on a mask just out of, uh, and, uh, you know, just to, to be, to be safe. But, uh, you know, we're at a different point because we do have vaccinations than we were before. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's serious. This is serious. We, we have to take this seriously. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, we have to prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Yeah. I, I think we're already seeing, uh, signs that people understand how, high the stakes are. I mean, we're watching um, Fox News, we're seeing Republicans, uh, we're seeing folks who haven't been pushing uh, 
the vaccine out to their communities now doing so, right? And so for me, it's never too late for people to get on message in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccination. But I do think everyone understands that if we, if we slide back, how harmful that's going to be, not just to our public health, um, but also to our economy. No one wants that. And the way out of it is proven. It's the vaccination. And so, you know, we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that we're reaching folks who are hard to reach, who have hesitancy about the effectiveness of the vaccine so that we can send our children uh, back to school, so that things can remain open, uh, and so that we can continue with our economic recovery. Now, the Massachusetts legislature has started having hearings regarding the billions of funding uh, coming to the Commonwealth as part of the American Rescue Plan. In addition, though, communities are also receiving money directly from the federal government. Uh, Congresswoman Trahan, let's start with you. How much money um, is coming to the 3rd Congressional District, and how have you heard that it's being used so far? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and one that every community is, uh, is working um, really hard and in a transparent way, you know, with their community stakeholders on how to uh, how to spend that money. We know it was a lifeline. I mean, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, not only are we on track to defeat COVID-19, but building back better. I mean, this is um, this is such an, a historic rescue package in, in terms of uh, the investment that we can make in our communities, in our, um, in our, uh, in our families, in our workers. So, you know, we, uh, um, we're seeing like all across, you know, from the f- more than five billion that's been allocated, uh, to the state of Massachusetts and over three billion, uh, for local co- governments to use for pandemic, uh, response and recovery. You know, folks are, you know, working within the guidance, whether that's upgrading their sewer and water infrastructure, you know, uh, accounting for lost revenues as a result of the uh, the expanded services that they had to um, uh, administer over the last 15 months. Uh, certainly, um, you know there are there are there are budgets. They're struggling, right? We're able to keep people on payroll. Uh, we're able to get ready for the next school year. Make sure that our EMTs and our our um, our police office and our and our firefighters are. Um, don't have budget shortfalls, which will cause, you know, cuts. So this money is a lifeline. I mean, there's, uh, I, I, you know, talk to communities like AIR that have received, you know, you know, 2.4 million to cities like Pittsburgh uh, that have received over $31 million. And this is, uh, this is going to prove to be a lifeline for our, our communities that have really been hardest hit uh, when you consider the pandemic response that they have to shoulder these last 15 months. And Congressman McGovern, same question for you regarding the second congressional district. Um, how is that money being used so far? I know Lemonster is getting several million dollars as well out of this. Well, I mean, it's being used in a number of ways. I mean, to support housing, to support uh, the extension of broadband, to you know, to support you know a lot of uh, needs that, quite frankly, uh, you know, were going unaddressed because of lack of funds. Uh, and as Laurie pointed out, that the state's getting a big chunk of money, which has, which they have to then allocate uh, to cities and towns. So every city and town gets something directly. But then, in addition to that, the state will provide uh, uh, more assistance. Uh, so this is gonna, this this is gonna help greatly, um, mm-hmm. you know, keep our economy afloat. And add that to like the the money, the emergency monies to help our restaurants, uh, the money, the PPP loans that were were provided uh, in previous legislation. Uh, but the pandemic was a big deal. The response is a big deal. Uh, and I think it is, it, it is helping. Now we need to build on that, pass an infrastructure bill, 
Uh, and then I think we need to do an, a, a reconciliation bill to provide uh, for more investments in human infrastructure as well. And looking at the infrastructure bill, um, can each of you highlight maybe one or two pieces that you feel will have the biggest impact on your own congressional district when it comes to this $3.5 trillion proposed plan? Well, look, I've got bridges in my district that are older than most of the other states in the country. I mean, they need to be repaired. Uh, we have uh, road work that needs to be uh, upgraded. We, I have airports. I have rail systems. A big chunk of this will be invested in rail. I want to see an east-west uh, uh, rail link. Um, so uh, we have water and sewer systems that are ancient, that are preventing uh, cities and small towns from, from growing. Uh, so you name it, um, every part of the infrastructure bill that we're talking about is essential. I hope we get a bipartisan bill. Um, I hope that can happen in the next uh, a few weeks. But if not, we'll have to go the route of reconciliation and go it alone uh, if that is necessary. But we need to invest in our infrastructure. Every other major country in the world is doing that. We're falling behind. And by the way, when you invest in infrastructure, it's not just about jobs. It's not just about upgrading a particular system. Um, it's about creating a climate in which the economy can grow. Uh, transportation is key to that at every level. And infrastructure is key to that. Yeah, I, I, can't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and certainly Chairman McGovern has been a leader um, in us passing the Invest in America Act, which is the House version of the infrastructure bill, uh, and working um, to make sure that those priorities are reflected um, in the infrastructure package. I mean, when I tour communities across the third district um, during my first term, uh, certainly to learn about the infrastructure needs, one thing was just abundantly clear. Washington has failed to foot its portion of the bill for a long time. And in communities in our districts uh, have had to bear the cost for making critical upgrades, you know, that the federal government really used to help with. So I know, you know, we've talked a lot about um, combined sewage overflows. They've long been a major problem uh, for communities. You know, my, my top priority was to get as much of the Stop Sewage Overflow Act, um, which is bipartisan legislation that I introduced, incorporated into the infrastructure bill as possible. Uh, and, you know, clearly the, the bridges, the roads, the, the, uh, the, this, the surface infrastructure, this investment that we must make in, in, in public transportation and high speed rail in west, uh, east west uh, corridor is, is, is so important. And it's going to really transform the lives of people in communities like Gardner and Fitchburg, um, uh, you know, Ashby, every community. So I think that this is uh, really important uh, as we consider our recovery, not just for creating jobs, but also making us more competitive. Um, you know, if we don't invest in our infrastructure, we lose our edge. We lose our ability to attract private investment, attract, um, you know, jobs in our communities, uh, lead, you know, the world in terms of our competitive advantage. And so this is long overdue and I'm really excited to, you know, come back to Washington to vote on this important package. And you both mentioned the word bipartisan. And I think that is kind of the, the big question everyone wants to know. Is there a bipartisan will to get things passed uh, with your colleagues down in DC? Do you think that we can find a compromise on this or will it come down to, as Congressman McGovern said, reconciliation? Well, I think Which it's a little bit of, Oh, go ahead. 
I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, there's clearly been uh, progress made on traditional infrastructure uh, with Senate Republicans and Democrats working, you know, with the White House on a on a traditional infrastructure bill. Uh, and I'm hopeful that those talks uh, continue and that so many of the priorities that, you know, the chairman and I just discussed are reflected in that bill. Um, but there's no question that what rides along that bill is a budget reconciliation package that ta- that encompasses the the bolder programs that the president has put forward in an American in his American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. Uh, you know, I don't want to see women left behind any longer. I mean, I think uh, it's it's time that the American that that American families are taken care of. Right? We know that there are reasons why. Uh, two working parents can't go back to work, right? We're seeing that play out right now. We have not invested in a quality, affordable childcare system that allows working parents to uh, to put their kids in, in daycare so that they can contribute and participate to our economy. Uh, we talk about universal pre-K. I mean, the rest of the world has made these investments. And so not only is it an investment in our children, an investment in our future generations and closing achievement gaps uh, dramatically, but it also is another form of, uh, you know, helping our working families get back to work. Um, so I'm really excited about what we can accomplish uh, and what we are committed to doing with budget reconciliation so that we make investments that will lead to the enduring strong growth of our economy, that will lead to, you know, improved productivity, and that will also finally help our hardworking families who are really struggling to make ends meet because the cost of living has just gotten untenable. Look, we want bipartisan deals. Most of the stuff that we're doing has bipartisan support all throughout the country. It's always problematic in the capital, but, you know, we have Republican governors that support what we're trying to do on infrastructure, support the American Rescue uh, relief package, but we had Republicans here in Washington that said no. And then we have bills that, quite frankly, have Republican support but may not have 60 votes. Uh, and the Senate uses the filibuster to prevent something that may have 59 votes out of 100, uh, and they block it. Uh, so we have a problem with the filibuster. We have a problem with obstructionism by a handful of members who, quite frankly, don't share our values. Uh, and um, and they they are more interested in Twitter followers and appearances on Fox News than they are in helping their own constituents. And look, we have real challenges here in this country. We're talking about infrastructure. We we need this is our best chance to get something done. We ought to get it done, uh, and we ought not allow, not not allow a small group of obstructionists to say no. And look here in the House. I mean, we, we tried to put together a bipartisan commission on January 6th. We gave the Republicans and Kevin McCarthy everything they asked for, equal distribution of membership, equal subpoena power. They got everything they wanted and said no. So when we talk about bipartisanship, understand we're trying, but we have people on the other side that say no, 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 no. So we're not going to let them just screw up the entire agenda. Uh, we want to work together. We want to come to compromise but if we can't, we're going to have to do it alone. And, um, and again, we'll see what happens with the infrastructure bill. But we're going to get an infrastructure bill. And in talking about the infrastructure bill, um, you mentioned some of the bolder initiatives. And some of those include a lot of greener initiatives. For businesses that might be more traditional industries that could be impacted by these greener initiatives, what are we going to do to make sure that those businesses aren't left behind and that those industries don't fall by the wayside and, and lose jobs as well? 
Yeah, look, I think that the, the, this administration, um, has been really mindful uh, of the transition, um, that is, that is happening in our country, uh, you know, from fossil fuels to renewable, uh, energy. Uh, and frankly, Massachusetts has been a leader, uh, in this regard. Um, you know, it was great to see us win, you know, the first, uh, permit for wind um, uh, under this admit the federal permit for you know wind energy in this administration um, and you know I was just with Secretary Granholm I mean they understand um, that this is not going to happen overnight but we have to make the investments today we have to continue we have to start that process just to catch up. I mean, climate change is an existential threat. I mean, you look at the extreme weather that's happening all across the globe, but in our country, we're feeling the effects of wildfires here on the East Coast. I mean, we must catch up uh, for the, you know, the, the last four years, especially of us backpedaling on our leadership in terms of dealing with the climate. And so that's what this administration is putting forth, both in their infrastructure plan. And look, this is about jobs, too. I mean, I... Uh, I'm I'm a little bit blown away that, you know, folks aren't looking or Republicans on the other side of the aisle when we talk about the investments that we have to make in uh, in climate change and in renewable energy that we're not that they're not thinking about this as a boon, you know, for our economy and for our jobs of the future. They're coming. Look, people are driving electric vehicles. They're buying them. They are in demand. We need an infrastructure of charging stations to accommodate that. Uh, and so, so much of this is being driven by the market. So much of this is being driven by consumers. Uh, you know, I know in my district, people care deeply about us catching up uh, to where we were, you know, under the Obama administration in terms of, you know, our, our leadership on climate change. And so, you know, these investments are overdue. And I think this administration is very keen to have those conversations about bringing everyone along where no one is going to get left behind during this transition, but we can't afford any longer for the future of our children uh, to put off these investments. Now, Congressman McGovern, hunger has always been a huge priority of yours, and you are continuing to call for action at the White House. How has the pandemic exacerbated the need to address this issue, and is this something that you believe you can get enough support behind to rally a piece of bipartisan legislation to end hunger here in the U.S.? Well, hunger spiked during the pandemic. Um, it went from, we had 37 million people in this country who were hungry. It went up to like 45, over 45 million people. Uh, and, um, and a lot of people who never thought they would ever be in a situation where they would be food insecure were lined up to get food boxes, uh, to, to put food on the table for their families. Um, hunger was a problem before the pandemic. It got worse during the pandemic. But we need to solve it. And uh, as chair of the Rules Committee, we are doing a series of hearings um, uh, in Washington, uh, roundtables, on-site visits, to try to uh, connect all the dots. Because the problem on this issue is that to solve it, it doesn't fall neatly under the jurisdiction of one committee or one department or one agency. It's all over the place. And we need a holistic approach. So I've called on the Biden administration to do a White House conference on food, nutrition, health, and hunger. Let's connect all the dots. Let's understand, it, it, yeah, we need to increase and we need to support programs like SNAP and school feeding. All those are incredibly important, Meals on Wheels. But we also have to be talking about jobs that pay livable wages. We have to talk about housing. We have to talk about agriculture. Uh, you know, the climate crisis has negatively impacted our farmers, even in Massachusetts. Um, we need to talk about, uh, you know, sustainability. And, uh, and look, hunger is a political condition. Uh, we have everything uh, we need to end it, the food, the knowledge, the programs, whatever. 
Uh, we don't. It's it's been the political will. So I think this White House conference, the first one in 52 years, by the way, we that's the last time we had a White House conference on this issue. I think could be a way to bring everybody together, connect the dots, come up with a plan, and put some deliverables on the table, and we can make a a, a big dent in hunger in America. Now, Congresswoman Trahan, everyone's focusing on sports right now with the Olympics happening. Athletics have obviously played a huge role in your life. With the recent Supreme Court decision regarding name and likeness of college players, can you tell us about the importance of your College Athletic Freedom Act? Yeah, look, this is an issue, Travis, as you uh, point out, that hits especially close to home. You know, for me, it's definitely through my experience as a Division One athlete that I became you know, all too familiar with the NCAA's business model that really capitalizes on some of our young athletes' most productive years. Uh, you know, as you know, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college, and it was because I got a volleyball scholarship. But look, college athletes sacrifice so much of their time and their opportunity uh, to play competitively and try and balancing that with school. You know what? I tell the story that when I played volleyball at Georgetown, I couldn't even coach a summer camp for high school girls back home because according to the NCAA, it jeopardized my amateur status. Now, we all know that amateurism is long gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't for a long time, but it hasn't stopped the NCAA from building a billion-dollar industry based on the guise of amateurism that is tilted exclusively to uh, our executives and to coaches on the backs of, you know, hardworking, talented, and often poor college athletes. So the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, allowing athletes to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness shows just how unfair that system has been. And, you know, what we're focused on now is um, the legislation that uh, I introduced with Senator Chris Murphy. Um, make That proposal would just establish a federal right for college athletes to market the use of their name, image, and likeness, or athletic reputation, and prohibit organizations like the NCAA from restricting that right. And Congressman Jim McGovern, Congressman Lori Trahan, I'd like to thank both of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes on Podbean, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.